Tyler, Jared, Julie Rayburn. Julie Rayburn, you had all of those girls from the Sunday school bring me balloons and make me a cupcake, Snickers bars. And Jared, you called my preemptive strike silly. Silly. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm angry. No, I'm at cute. And you mocked me, Tyler, getting up the stairs. He said he was clapping because he couldn't believe at 50 I still could make it up the stairs. So, no, you know what I'm going to do? Because I'm so mad. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to give you the silent treatment. I'm not going to talk to him. To any of you. All of you sang to me. Silent treatment for all of you. It's kind of stupid. I can't pull that off. That's dumb. Actually, that's my introduction because the silent treatment, it doesn't work, does it? Unless you're engaged or you're dating somebody for the first time when your fiancé or, you know, this girl you really like gives you the silent treatment, you wonder, what did I do? Oh, man, I'm sorry. I'll change. But after you get married a while, it really doesn't work anymore. Did you notice? I know of a couple where this guy would throw his clothes all over. One day he took a shower, took that wet towel that he just got out of the shower with, threw it on his wife's new comforter. You don't do that, guys. You don't do that. She was so mad, she didn't talk to her husband for 20 years. He could care less. He kind of liked it. A silent treatment doesn't always work. But the silent treatment does communicate something. It communicates that there's not harmony. There's something wrong in our relationship. Something is missing. Something is not right. And did you know that God sometimes gives us the silent treatment? And when he gives us the silent treatment, we need to pay attention. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Turn to Psalm 50 if you can. Psalm chapter 50, we're going to do part two today, and the title is Silent Treatment. Some of you might be wondering about this. There was a wedding yesterday. Tyler Hull got married, and while I was sitting back there watching this, the wedding, and I saw this, Brian Howard leaned over to me, and he goes, that looks like the gallows. Somebody's going to get hung from there. Nikki, I didn't say it. I didn't say it. Tyler did. Are you trying to communicate something to the husband about marriage? What do you... And for my sermon today, it fits perfect. We're, we're going to kind of talk about the gallows. It's going to be really uplifting today. So let's read Psalm 50, starting in verse 16, part 2 of Psalm 50 study. The psalmist writes, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes? Or take my covenant on your lips. For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And you keep company with the adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil. And your tongue frames deceit. You sit and you speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done. And I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now, I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest... Boy, this is a bad verse. Like, if you want to talk about a bad verse, this verse, lest I tear you apart with none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So this is part two. 
So if we would review a little bit before we got here, last week we talked really about three things. Verse 1 actually is the encapsulation of last week. We said in verse 1, the, God, the, the Holy God, God the Lord speaks. He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. It says out of Zion, God shines forth. And the idea is that God is, that means He is mighty. He's eternal. He's Jehovah. That means He makes agreements, covenants with His people. He's everlasting. We also said He speaks. A number of times He says He's constantly speaking. There's some discussion on whether Psalm 50 is really a psalm about the great white throne judgment of Christ or is it explaining God's current standing before us? And I think both are accurate. I'm taking it from the position of current. God currently is speaking. And he isn't just speaking, he's speaking to everybody. Everybody who lives from the rising of the sun to its setting. So, in other words, everyone is accountable. He's accountable to hear when God speaks. God speaks, we said last week, in four ways. He speaks in creation. He speaks through your conscience. This internal judge. He speaks through His covenant promises, which is His Word. His Word is basically promises that He gives to you. And then He also speaks through Christ, His Son, especially His Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. So that's the review of part one. God is, God speaks, and it's to all. But the question is, and I think, I think some of you in here ask this question, if you hear what I'm saying, Right now, I think in some of your hearts, this question can haunt you, and it's this. What if I am not hearing at all from God? What if on a daily basis, really, I don't even... His presence kind of means nothing to me. What if when you go out in creation, you see a beautiful sunset, or you see... As I said last week, my wife's fiancé's baby's brother's son's uncle. If you are here last week, you know what I'm talking about. When you see that baby, if you see that baby as, eh, <laughs> random processes, which happened over years and millennial of time that just randomly happened, if that's how you see it, wow, I'm speaking to you today. If you um, do things that you know are wrong, like let's say you did that thing 10 years ago and it broke you to the heart, but now you do it and it's like, ah, no big deal. I'm speaking to you today. If you see the Word of God, it's interesting, in Jeremiah chapter 6 and chapter 8, God is speaking to the demise of His people. And He said one of the first signs, one of the first signs when people started running from God as they found no pleasure in His Word. If you find no pleasure, like you read it and you're like, this is a confusing old book. How can anybody find any meaning from this? Ah. If that's how you are with God's Word, that's His primary mode of communication. I'm speaking to you today. And if, if you like evaluate your life and say, boy, I don't have much joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Because that's how the Holy Spirit works in you. That's called the fruit of the Spirit. If I don't have that, I'm speaking to you today. Why, why don't people hear Him? I think there's a number of reasons. I think one reason might be we're busy. Jared in his sermon said we, a lot of times we see God, but there's something else that distracts me. Uh, yeah, I want God, but man, that's glittery. We get distracted easy. I think we're so busy, so much entertainment, that it's easy to miss God's still, small voice. It's easy. I think some of us, we're cyclical. We get in depression and we're happy. We get depressed, we're happy. We get to, when you turn 50, you really get down there, man. You don't hear, I'm kidding. I feel great, feel great. Never felt better. Anyhow, but some of you, get this cyclical depression. And it's real for some of you. But for some of you, the reason you don't hear from God 
he may be giving you the silent treatment. Because there is a group of people in the Bible he clearly gives the silent treatment through. In a number of passages, but specifically here in chapter 50, he says, to the wicked, he will remain silent. Look in verse 16, but to the wicked... That's who he's going to speak to. He's basically going to tell how they behave, and because they behave in a certain way, he's going to give them the silent treatment. Well, who are the wicked? The wicked is a term, that term reza, is a, is a term that's often juxtaposed with, in the Old Testament, the righteous man. The Hebrew word is the sadiq, the sadakim, the man who is good, as contrasted to the man who is bad, bad, bad. Proverbs will say you have the wise man and the foolish, wicked man. So it's a characteristic of a group of people that are not like the righteous. There's a confirmation in their character. It's kind of like who they are. In one definition form would be this. The wicked denotes an entire category of people who have done wrong in the past, who are still doing wrong, and, this is the kicker, who are intending to continue to do wrong. See, some of us, if we looked at that definition and said, I've done wrong. Everyone in here has done, ooh, things you can't tell a soul. We all have. Some of us are living in sin right now and enjoying it. That's really bad. But there's some of us who take it to the next spot that say, not only am I doing it now, but I'm intending to continue to do it. It's who I am. I remember before really I let Christ into my life. I would claim to be a Christian. I would do things that I knew were wrong. I'd go to church so I could be forgiven of those things, but when I came to be forgiven of those things, I knew I'd go back and do those same things. I just thought church was just kind of to clean you up so you go do it again. I didn't repent. Repentance is when I'm like, uh-oh, i got to stop. The wicked don't say that. Look at Psalm 10, verse 4. It's a perfect description of the wicked. Psalm 10, verse 4. Actually, if you want a whole psalm on what a wicked man's like, it's Psalm 10. But verse 4 says, in the pride of his face, the idea of that, you can see it in his countenance. You can see a wicked, it's weird, God, in the Old Testament, there's what's called countenance. You can kind of, if you ever say, man, I can really read people, you can kind of tell from the way people look. In the pride of his face, or from his countenance, the wicked does not seek him. They don't want him. Not only that, all his thoughts. There's no God. Come on. There's no God. That's the wicked man. He's confirmed in that. In his mind, not only did he do wrong, is he doing wrong, is he going to do wrong, but he knows God doesn't see him because he's too good to be too smart, too cool to be caught. That's the idea of a wicked man. This is the group I would say, ooh, be careful to be in because this is the group that's judged. Well, you might be saying, you know what? I kind of do those things. How do I know if I'm really in trouble? How do I know if I'm going to be judged? There are two symptoms of the sickness of wickedness that Psalm 50 is going to bring out. And this means if you have these symptoms, oh man. The first one we find in Psalm 50 verse 16 and 17. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. What we're going to do also is we're going to go to Romans 1. We're going to kind of compare these two because Romans 1 and Psalm 50 are very similar. If you go to Romans 1, Jared had us read this, but I want you to see it. Romans 1, 18 and 19. 
It says, for the wrath of God is revealed. That means God's wrath is currently being shown. That's kind of strange. I thought wrath was waiting. No, it's current. We're going to talk about that. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, but they don't want it. So what, what this whole idea is, the very first symptom of sickness is this willful suppression. God gives us truth. Revelation means God shows us who He is, what He wants us to be, what He loves, what He hates. He shows us that. We see it, and we cast it behind us. Eh, who cares? Another term we use for that's hypocrite. Willful suppression. And Romans says because of that, men, mankind is without excuse. Now, let me give you a, a... I'll kind of illustrate this through a joke. This is my kids' favorite joke. They heard this joke probably a hundred times because they love it so much. Not really. They just like to humor their father because they know he's getting old. So they humor his, their dad. Here's the joke. There's a guy that decided to go to the pet store to buy some dog food. So he goes to the pet store. And as he walks into the pet store, on his right is this stand, chained to the stand, it's this beautiful parrot named Polly. Beautiful parrot. Rainbow-colored feathers. I mean, just beautiful. Ah, talks like that, you know. The guy walks in, and the parrot goes, ah, Hey, buddy! The guy looks at the parrot and says, You talking to me? He goes, Yeah, I'm talking to you. Yeah, what do you want? I've never heard a bird talk. What's going on? He goes, sir, you are the ugliest man I ever saw in my whole life. I said, what? He goes, yeah, you're uglier than a mud fence. If I put a mirror up to you, you'd crack probably every time. You're so ugly. I said, what did you say? You heard me. You, sir, are an ugly, ugly man. Oh, the man's furious. Goes in. Pet store owner said, hey, welcome, how you doing? He goes, not good. He goes, not good, why not? Well, your parrot, Polly, he just insulted me to my face. He goes, no, he's the nicest parrot we got. You kidding me? That Your parrot called me ugly. I have never been so insulted. He says, I'll take care of it. Let's go out there. And he went to the parrot. And he said, Polly, he said, yeah? He said, what did you say to this man? I called that man ugly. That's the ugliest man I ever saw. He's uglier than a mud fence. He goes, Polly, you can't say that's our customers. Well, he is, isn't he? And he took that pair, took him in the back, started slamming him on the ground, pulling out his feathers, said, Polly, you never talk to our customers like that. And if you do, off with your head. Polly said, okay, all right. They put Polly back up. The owner goes to the guy, said, give him a $20 gift certificate. You can buy all the dog food you want. He gets a Neck chain, a leash, he's heading out. He's got the big dog food on his thing. He's got his bag walking out. The bird goes, hey, buddy. The guy looks up and says, what? The bird looks at him and says, you know. <laughs> My kids never laugh at it either. I don't, they, here's the idea. We... God tells us that we are guilty. But we suppress it. We don't want to hear it. But we know. The atheist has all these arguments that God is God doesn't exist, but he knows. You know why atheists are so mad? Cuz they know he exists. They just don't want him to be in charge. People who sin, they know. You know how people who sin know? Because it's hard for them to go to bed at night. This willful suppression, we can try to suppress it, but it will keep coming up. Willful suppression is of truth. It's of revelation. It's of things we know about ourselves, about God, what we've done wrong, what he sees in our dark moments. One person said this, though. This is interesting. 
said truth isn't just giving mental assent to something. So suppression isn't just, you know, because some of you might, well, no, I agree with all this stuff. I agree with that. See, I don't, I don't suppress the truth. I know it. But Psalm 50 kind of puts it like this. Look how Psalm 50 puts it. Psalm 50 says, What right have you to recite my statutes? Take your covenant on your lips, and you cast my words behind you. It's not in the mental ascent. Truth, as one man writes, is something to be done. Let me give you an illustration. Say I got a chair. And I take this chair, and I want to get alone. I'm tired of everybody saying happy birthday. So I want to get alone. So I take this chair, I put it right in the middle of M37, and I sit down. Nobody will come talk to me on an M37. No way. So I sit there, and now I'm comfortable. It's a nice chair. It's comfortable. And I see off in the distance, a semi-trailer tractor's buzzing, 16-wheeler, coming at 75 miles an hour. Randy, where's Randy Atkins? You, you drive probably 95 miles. Anyhow, you know, God doesn't want you to suppress that, Randy. Anyhow, so it's coming at me 75 miles an hour. Now my mind starts working and it says, if I get hit by a truck on 75 miles an hour, I don't think I'm going to live much longer. I mean, that's kind of reasonable. I think, I think my whole entrails will be all along this uh, road. That's kind of what my mind might say. So it's coming, but I'm just going to sit there. Boom, I get hit. What I've just told you is I don't believe it. It's not truth to me. But if I see that, if I hear, the first time I hear that horn, I guarantee, well, first of all, I wouldn't be so stupid to put this chair in the road. That's dumb. You're saying that's stupid. Yes, because you acknowledge truth, but also you believe the truth. So if I really believe the truth, then when that truck starts coming, I'm going to get up and run. Because of two things. I fear for the consequences of the truth, and I love the reward of the truth. The reward of the truth, if I get up and I run, I save my life. The consequences of the truth are if I sit, I'm dead. Truth is acknowledging not just information, but the rewards and the punishments of not obeying the truth. So you tell me you love because you're a Christian, but you're impatient, you keep records of wrongs, you're unkind, then you really don't believe the truth. You really don't believe that God is watching. You really don't believe that the life that you can have when you love one another is worth it. You can say you know the truth. Truth isn't just giving mental assent. So the first sign or symptom is willful suppression. The second sign we find in Psalm 50, and this is where it's, this is really when you can tell you are wicked, is guilt-free, guilt-free sinning. Guilt-free. You sin, and you have no guilt. Listen to um, verse 18 through 20 of Psalm 50. Watch just how it's written. It says, if you see a thief, so a thief is somebody that covets what somebody else has and takes it. It's not theirs. They take it. And so if you see somebody covenant coveting and taking something else, it says, you're pleased with them. Oh, that's cool, man. That guy got, he stole that. Go get them. Get what they have. You keep company with adulterers. This idea of company. You know, in Psalm 1, it says, blessed is a man who does not sit in the seat of mockers or walk in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the way of the Lord. But the idea there is sitting and having company with those who are sinners, in this case, adulterers. An adulterer is using somebody else for your pleasure outside of marriage any, in any way. Actually, Romans 1 says when God gave them over, he gave them over to sinful desires where actually women exchanged desires for women 
and men exchange desires for men. And some people are saying, yeah, that, you're reading that the wrong way. How am I reading that the wrong way? Well, at the time they wrote that, they didn't understand true monogamous homosexual relationships. What does that mean? That's called reading, twisting scripture. What God is saying is that you delight in giving people just free perversion. Verse 19, you give your mouth free reign for evil. What does that mean? That's, have you ever been with somebody that doesn't mind just like swearing is like a natural part of their life or talking bad about the other sex is a natural part of their life or backbiting people or complaining? It kind of is like if they get a thought, it just comes out. Boom. Free reign. Boom. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, A man who fears God takes every thought in submission to Christ. The thought is, the idea is if I have a thought, there's two guards up here in my mind which say, would that pass the muster of Jesus? Ah, he doesn't like that. Okay, then cut that out. This means there's no guards up there. You, anything you think starts coming out of your mouth. You've been with people like this. And I can remember I work construction and anything they wanted to say, they'd listen to Howard Stern and just talk. I mean... Guys, don't you have any dignity? None? Zero? Or are you just animals? Is that what we are as animals? The next one's interesting. It says you, your tongue frames deceit. That means it's kind of like your mouth is hooked to lying. You're a liar. You're a consummate liar. I heard one person say the worst sin that you could ever commit is lying because if you become good at it, you can get away with everything else. Sadly, our politicians are great at it. They're great at it. It's terrible. Verse 20, you sit and speak against your brother. That means you have malice, slander, gossip. And you slander your own mother's son. This phrase right here, your own mother's son, is what's called a messianic idiom, which means... Jesus is considered the son of his mother because he's born of a woman in the Old Testament. A lot of times, the Messiah is referred to the mother's son. And this is saying, you slander Christ. Have you ever met anybody that has no respect for the name of Christ? They mock God. I want you to go to Romans 1. It says exactly the same thing. Romans 1.28. Watch how it's written. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, which means they had the knowledge of God, but they didn't see fit to acknowledge Him. They didn't want it. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Covetousness, wanting what thieves are taking. Malice, talking bad about your brother. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, which means you can't tell them to change. They, you can't correct them. Have you ever corrected a person and they're like, who are you to tell me what to do? Well, you're drunk and you're swearing at every... Well, who are you to judge me? That's insolence. Insolent. Uh, haughty, I'm better than you. Boastful. Look how much better I am than you. Inventors of evil, it's funny because this is where we're at. We are, as Americans, we're masters of inventing evil. It's funny, we think if somebody can have a creatively good evil movie, boy, they're geniuses. It's not, you're not a genius because you're evil. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And watch how this is written. Though they know God's decree, they know it, but they're ignoring it, those who practice such things deserve to die. What? That's why we have the gallows. Ugh. So, what this is saying is a truly wicked person has guilt-free sinning. Listen to C.S. Lewis's statement on guilt-free sin. This is an amazing statement. C.S. Lewis says, the lost, meaning the wicked or the, those who I'm categorizing, 
categorizing in this group. The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore enslaved. There is a, there's a freedom to sin. That's what he's saying. The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they've demanded. That's the freedom to sin. And the freedom to sin a lot, it enslaves you. There's a freedom from sin that's called righteousness. Guilt-free sinning enslaves you. And that's why it said God gives them God gives them over. It's, Paul in the, in the Bible, however, is, always has sympathy for the person wrestling. The person who really feels caught and wants out needs help. The Bible, that's who the Bible's written to those people who are caught in sin and want help. The wicked are the ones who turn sin into good. They call, good, they call bad good. And then so if good is a, if bad, which is making me sick, is called good, there's now no remedy for my sickness. And there are so many people in our culture now that they want out of their perversions, but we now call their perversions good. And now they have nowhere to turn. So if they go to a counselor and they say, I want out, the counselor said, you have nothing to worry about, that's fine. But in their heart, they know they're dying. That's why when we call something evil, we're doing it out of love, not out of hardness. If you tell an alcoholic drinking alcohol is just fine, you're killing him. We're doing that with people sexually too nowadays. Now, read Psalm 50. Now it gets scary. This is scary. He says, verse 20, you sit and you speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done I've been silent. Silence. What does it mean? Here's what it does not mean. When God is silent, when people go and have guilt-free sinning, and they think they're getting away with it, God's silence does not mean God is a pushover or an ignorant old grandpa. That's not what it means. Listen to verse 21. These things you have done, I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself. If I keep hitting a guy in the face and he never comes back at me, I tend to start thinking he's either weak, wimpy, or he doesn't care anymore. That's what bullies do. Bullies keep trying to push the envelope, and if nobody fights back, they figure, huh, pushovers. So when we sin against God, and yet we still seem to be doing great, we're like, oh, look at that. I can deceive him. I can deceive God. This is saying, ah, ah, ah. What is that? Ah, ah, ah. That's from that Jurassic Park thing. Ah, ah, ah. Remember that? Back? Anyhow. Jared did that to me this week, and I said, I know where that's from. Jared, why do you do this to me? Anyhow, I want you to go to Romans again, but we'll go to chapter 2, verse 5. Romans 2, verse 5. 4 and 5. This is such, to me, this is such a beautiful passage. If you want to try to understand why the world is why it is, why does he let things happen? Why does God not see? Why does he let ISIS rampage? Why does he let people? Here's the answer. You may not like it, but it's true. Verse 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you presume upon? Meaning, do you interpret God's kindness, forbearance, and patience wrongly? Forbearance. When you do something wrong against him, he doesn't say anything. Patience. He's being quiet. Kindness is he's not instantly rebuking. Are you presuming on that? Wrongly understanding it? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant, there's a purpose for his kindness, it's to lead you to repentance. It's supposed to say, wow, I am so trapped. God, help. Verse 5. Here's where it gets bad. Verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, that means because of you know, your insolence, you don't want to turn, but because of that, 
You're storing up wrath for yourself on a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The implication is just like a dam is storing up water, God is storing up wrath. Here's, here's a perfect illustration. I was showing my boys one of my favorite actors of the 70s. One of my favorite 1970s actors was Bruce Lee. You know, ha ha Love Bruce Lee. Hi-hi! Like that, when he goes like that. You know, when he talks like this, how are you doing? I love those movies. Anyhow, there's one movie, I think it, it's, it's one of his Fists of Fury. I think he's got a couple of Fists of Fury. But the storyline goes like this. Bruce Lee, if you know anything about Bruce Lee, he was strong. Like he could take on the whole country of Japan, break all their arms, and he wouldn't have a scratch. He's amazing. This one movie, he's beating everybody up, and his mom's about to die. And she says, I think his name was Chen. She says, Chen, I want to give you this necklace. You wear a necklace. You stop fighting. So he made this vow of non-aggression. He will never fight again. He moves to this one town that has all these mafia guys, and they are beating everybody up, and they even are hitting him, and he's not doing anything because he has this necklace. I promise I never hit again. So he wears a necklace. Then they kill his sister. I mean, he, he destroys the world. He's holding it in, holding it in, holding it in. But when they breached a line that he no longer could hold it in, it's over. What is God's line? And what will it be like when God reaches his line? So here's what it may mean, Psalm 50, the middle of verse 21. It may mean God's silence, even though it means patience, it also may mean you are currently in trouble. You're under his wrath. Ephesians 2, verse 3 says, we are the objects, the target of his wrath right now in our natural, our natural state. He says here, but now I rebuke you. This is what verse 21 says, I rebuke you, which means I am making you aware of something. Rebuking is to stop you in what you're doing and causing you to listen. Listen, listen, I'm rebuking you and I'm laying a charge before you. You're guilty. Here's what's really interesting. And I, I've never really thought about it before until really going through this. Guilt-free living, that means guilt-free, guilt-free sinning, is the result of wrath, not the cause of it. Huh? Because we suppress God's truth, His judgment is now being revealed. And the way His judgment is being revealed is He's letting us have our way. Like that doesn't make any sense. Look at it like this. Let's say you have a garden, and let's say you just get mad at your garden. I know you don't get mad at gardens, but let's say the garden offends you. So you're mad at the garden, and you're like, all right, I'm not going to weed you anymore, Mr. Garden. And you never weed your garden again. So what happens to your garden? All these weeds come up and start choking out the tomato plants and the big, like, uh, milkweed take over the pumpkin plant. And so the garden is destroyed because you have let go. So judgment on the garden is letting go. Have you ever, you really got mad at your kids? You want to really get, your, get mad at your kids? Throw them in your house and lock the door and leave for two weeks. Especially if they're five and under. I, I only did it twice to my kids, but it works. It really works. It's called, I call it Lord of the Flies punishment. Just let them go. You let the five-year-old change the diaper, the two-year-old. Who's going to make the dinner? Who's... I'll just let them go. That's judgment. And that's what God is doing to us. All right? You want perversion? Go ahead. You don't want to remain faithful to your vows of marriage? Go ahead. You know what that's going to do to your kids and your psyche and your emotion? That's fine. Go ahead. That's judgment. One other person, this is, 
In Romans 1, it says the wrath of God is now being revealed. And there's an idea that it's, it's uh, individual, but some writer said, no, no, no. It, that's actually worldwide. That's historical. And so this writer says, history itself, history itself is a chronicle of wrath. The, world, the history of the world is the judgment of the world, this guy writes. In, in other words, he's saying, what does God really want? He wants us to have heaven on earth. But we don't want him, so what he does is he lets us form our own governments, our own authorities, and what usually ends up is no matter how you cut it, violence occurs on either side. There's right now going on, Dana, have you ever heard of, have you ever heard of the Burning Man Festival? It's kind of weird. The Burning Man Festival actually starting today. It goes on for a week. It's kind of an offshoot of Woodstock. But back in 1986, these two artists got together in California, and they said, let's have a whole week where we just do art, free art. We kind of live like we're in a commune where we treat each other equally. We just give gifts. We don't expect payment. We be environmentally good, and we just display our art. And everything is free. And they started this in 1986. They had 100 people that, that started it, and they said it was great. So it started growing, and today, starting today, it is in the deserts in Reno, and there's 70,000 people that go to this. 70,000. They have this giant effigy, a giant wooden picture of this man, and they, on the last day, they burn it, and it's kind of like, we don't need any authority. We can be perfect together in ourselves, and they, they have all of these values, but what's crazy about it in the last 20 years, they have had all kind of overdoses, deaths. They have, they have, you know, they're supposed to be environmentally conscious, but they have all these billionaires coming from Russia and Europe, and they're making this huge carbon footprint, so everybody's getting mad. And they have these billionaires that set up these tents in the desert that cost millions of dollars, and they hire Mexicans, and they pay them hardly anything. The Mexicans aren't allowed to have any of the food that they have, even though they're supposed to be given free. And then they have all of these, it's like, it's debauchery unleashed. The photos are, don't go on it. It's bad. But it's supposed to set up a perfect community, and it's turned into this nightmare. It's so bad that they have to have cops from all over the area coming, and now they're upset that the cops are there. But if they don't have cops there, people are getting run over by vehicles, but they have too many cops there. So they're saying, they're not letting us be free anymore. It's like crazy. History is the wrath of God unfolding. Why else are we so angry at each other? Why else is one side mad at the cops and the other side are mad at people that just riot and loot and rip everybody apart? Because we've suppressed the voice of God. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. So what is the logical outworking of unrepentance? Verse 22. Mark this. That means, all right, listen, and, and don't forget this. You who forget God, don't forget this. You who forget God, you who are suppressing, you who are currently guilt-free living, lest I tear you apart. That's I think that's some of the hardest words in the whole Bible. It means if you don't turn, I'm going to tear you apart. NIV, I'm going to rip you to pieces. Some writers are like, what? They even, they even say, is not wrath incompatible with the enlightened understanding of God? We are more mature than that. We don't need an angry God anymore. We're more mature than that. We're in it, we're, we are reasonable people. We don't need to go go completely crazy and think God is still this angry giant in the sky. A.W. Tozier writes, the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the conscience of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer. The command to repent goes unregarded. As responsible moral beings, we dare not so trifle without, with our eternal future. So the idea is that people want us to think God doesn't get mad anymore. But he does. And listen to two, just listen to these two quotes. First quote. 
As long as God is God, that means as long as He's holy, the mighty one, God the Lord, He cannot behold with indifference that His creation is destroyed. He just can't be indifferent to the demolishing of the beautiful people He made, the death of His Son. He can't be indifferent that His creation is destroyed and His holy will trodden underfoot. Therefore, He meets sin with His mighty and annihilating reaction. That's terrifying. Another person put it really succinctly. God shows wrath only. Only because he loves. Have you ever, have you ever sat with a dad whose daughter's been abused? Ever. Inside, that dad is fury. Because in their heart, they want they want, they want their daughter to have a world where she doesn't have to be wounded like that. And in him is a anger. This is not right. And that anger is right. We killed his son. That is not right. Wrath is compatible with an enlightened understanding of God. All right, so here I stand as guilty. What do I do? What does God want? That's the last verse. It's exactly the same thing he wants from his people. Same thing for the wicked. Listen to it, last verse. Verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. He wants my heart. Wicked man, he wants your heart. Sacrifice of thanksgiving, that means I understand that he, we sang it, he took my place. I can't believe it. And you know what? I'm, I, I've got nothing to do but thanksgiving and gratitude and I'm going to live for him. Second thing, to the one who orders his way rightly, he doesn't want just our hearts, but he wants our integrity. He wants us to mark our ways rightly. If we vow to do something, we don't throw it behind us. We do what the covenant says. And then the third thing, I will show him the salvation of God. If you really are caught in your sin and you cry out to him, he will rescue you. I'm just telling you. If you are sick of your sickness, he will answer you. I want to finish with this story. And it's, um, many of you know, and you give me grace about this, that I, I like to read stories about about Nazis. I really like it. Actually, Charlie Franks knows he gave me a penny from the Germans this morning. Thank you for my 50th. I love it. Thanks, Charlie. But, but I, like to, I like to read about the World War II because I wonder, and I'm sure most scholars wonder, how could the Germans do what they did to the Jews? But I read this book that said, how could the Jews not see that it was coming there? Why didn't they leave? Why didn't they leave when all the signs were there? So this writer says, um, in the 1930s, the Jews started realizing just how much danger they were in to be classified as a Jew. However, most did not leave Berlin. For each one who hurried to the visa office, many more, the vast majority, decided to wait. They were mar largely middle class, they were bound psychologically and materially to the land. They felt German. They simply were not prepared to surrender their lives in a country where they had thrived. Even though the Nazis thundered and raged and promised to kick them out, for the Jews it was hard to know how seriously to take those threats. Surely, many thought, Hitler would have to temper his rhetoric, be reasonable now that he was in power, Surely they could work out a compromise that would allow them to live in peace. All things considered, listen to what this writes, the German Jews could count more reasons to stay than go. There was too much to overcome. Rootedness, complacency, incredulity, smugness, naivety, wishful thinking, and even opportunism. So they waited. Here's what he's saying. You know why the Jews didn't leave? Even though Hitler raged, and even though everybody basically were pretty blatant about how they are going to annihilate the Jews, here's why they stayed. They were rooted, they were complacent, 
and they had wishful thinking. The reason why people don't repent is because I like my life. I don't want to change. Complacent. I don't care what God thinks. In wishful thinking, I'll be okay. I'll be all right when I die. I'll be okay. So, if you'll be okay, then why did God have to kill his son? If it's not a big deal, why did Jesus die? Oh, he was just doing a nice thing for us. Really? So, his bloody death, even though he didn't do one thing wrong, is just a sign that he wanted to show you how nice a guy he is? Or did he die because you are in desperate need? To me, it's funny, Jerry, uh, I talked about this last week, he was sitting in that that pew right there, and he said, so we have to, so we, it's a choice. And I said this a little bit last week. He said it's a choice between holiness and happiness. I said, no, no, no. It's a, there's a happiness that comes before holiness, but there's also a happiness that comes after holiness. I want the happiness that comes after holiness, not before, because the happiness that comes before holiness is a lie. But the happiness that comes after holiness is where I'm set free. If I go to the doctor and he doesn't tell me I have cancer and he gives me a balloon and says, has a great day and I'm still dying of cancer, it's nothing to be happy about. But if I go to the doctor and he says, here's the procedures, it'll take about a year, but after that year you'll be cancer free. I heard the bad news, but I have hope. The bad news is we're wicked. The good news is Jesus died, and you have hope. So what do you do with it? Do you believe? Do you change? Or do you take his word and cast it behind you, rub it in the dirt, and just keep living? That's for you to decide. But his word's true. Let's pray. Father, we... uh, We are grateful that you are loving enough to warn us. I think it's funny, I was just talking with somebody that said, we don't, we don't believe love warns anymore. We think love just makes people feel good, but you have the kind of love that warns. And Help us, Father, to heed your warning. Thank you for this day. Holy Spirit, please convince us of truth. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.